Hey everyone, Mitch from the future here. Due to an error on my part while recording this episode, there are some minor issues with the audio. And unfortunately, the audio quality is not quite where it usually is for the other episodes. If this is a big issue, then please skip this one. But I do think the content of this episode is still worthwhile, and therefore I've still put it up. So, enjoy. Welcome to the Meeple in a GameStack podcast, a podcast all about board games, whether it's getting into them, getting the most out of them, or just having a good time. This is podcast number 10, and as always, I'm your host, Mitch Brown. Today we're going to be talking about what I've been playing recently, followed by today's topic, painting miniatures, uh, a topic that's very, very close to my heart, followed by the feature game, which is Star Wars Imperial Assault. Alright, so what I've been playing recently, and for those who've been listening to the podcast a fair bit will know that one of my favorite two-player games, or my favorite two-player game, is Fox in the Forest. Well, recently it's actually gotten a bit of a contender for that in the wonderful two-player game that is Jai Purr, designed by Sebastien Pauchon, published by Space Cowboys. And what Jai Purr is, is a card taking hand management game. Each player will have a hand of five cards, and in front of them there will be a row of five cards. And what you're trying to do is sell the most cards you can by making sets. If you sell sets of more, they're worth more points, but you can also sell a lot of little sets to make up the points as well. On your turn, you can either take one card, you can swap any number of cards with ones in your hand, assuming that you can't swap the same one back. You can't pick up a purple silk and then put down a purple silk as well. Or you can take all of the available camels that are in this five-card selection in front of you. The other thing that you can do on your turn is sell, and you can sell these sets to earn points, like I mentioned earlier. And it's another one of those games that doesn't really sound like much until you start playing it. From that rules description, it doesn't sound like an amazing game, but really, really, it is. It's very well balanced. It's very, you could choose your own strategy, and it's very tough to kind of, I mean, it's impossible to nail down one for sure way to win. I've played a whole bunch of games now, and I've tried to win by controlling all the camels, because the camels you can use as swappable. You can swap any number of cards from your hand. You can use camels instead of that. Otherwise, they're not really good for anything, except for a minor bonus at the end of the round, if you have the most camels. But by picking them all up and kind of controlling them, it lets you control this row in front of you, because you will, if you can keep all the camels to yourself, you will be the only one who can pick up a lot of cards all at once. And that can be hugely beneficial when you're trying to get a set of five gold cards. Being able to dump a bunch of camels and pick up a bunch that just came up is hugely valuable. However, then, of course, like, much of this game, it's very well balanced. If you pick up the whole roll, you spend all your camels, put them out, and that is usually a good play, but sometimes picking up the entire horde of camels that are in front of you to try to control them actually just refreshes the pile in front of you and might give your opponent a crucial resource that they've been waiting for. If they have four and they're waiting for that fifth ruby, then refreshing the pile can definitely give the opportunity for them to complete that set. So even if your opponent is controlling all the camels, it's certainly not they're not for sure going to win because of how the game plays. 
And it's another great two-player game, just quick. I'd say there's a... I don't know. It's tough to compare with Fox in the Forest because I don't know if there's more or less strategy to it. But there's certainly... I'd say in Fox in the Forest there's a little more going with your gut than Jaipur, which you can try to calculate. And certainly it doesn't mean that you'll win, but it usually helps. And the version that I have is the second re-released version. Um, all of the art in the game is really great. The theme of it is you are a trader for the Maharaja, so it's got this great like Middle Eastern theme. All the art for it is great. There's a wonderful amount of tactility as what you buy, you actually pick up these cardboard coins for. And even those not being more cards, just being like coins as a separate thing, is a great amount of tactility to the game. And it is just well designed, fits in a little box, and it's a great one to bust out quickly with a, another person that you want to play. And it's pretty easy to pick up. Once you have that strange rule set down, and figure out how that all interacts. It's really, really quick to ramp up and into having fun and playing the game well. And yeah, I would highly recommend it. I'm sure I'll be featuring it at some point, and it's a great addition for a two-player game to anybody's collection. The other game that I've been playing recently is Cockroach Poker, designed by Jacques Zaimet, published by Dry Magir Spiel. And I guess the topic for what I've been playing recently is games that are so simple that it's actually hard to describe them, because Cockroach Poker is very, very simple. It's what you are doing in Cockroach Poker is just trying to bluff and trying to call people out on their lies. How it works is you'll have a hand of cards in front of you, you deal out a certain number for however many people it plays with, and in your hand of cards you'll have rats, spiders scorpions, and other unwanted creatures. But what you're trying to do is, if you're the first player to go, you will put down, we'll say, a rat. You then choose whether to lie or to not lie to the person you're passing it to, to the left. That person then has the option. So say you put down a rat and then said it's a scorpion and passed it to that person. They now have the option to either pass it on by looking at the card and then they pass it to the next player saying yes it is a rat yes it is a scorpion or no it's a rat or choosing for themselves whether they want to bluff or to just tell the truth which in and of itself is a kind of bluff or they have the option to try to call you out and if they try to do so they have to agree with you and say yes it is a scorpion or no it isn't a scorpion and if they call it right and they call your bluff and say yes no it's not a scorpion you were lying the card is flipped up, it's revealed that it is actually a rat, so they called you on it, and that card sits in front of you. And the way to win this game is kind of unique in that there actually isn't one winner, there's only one loser, and everyone else wins. Because if, you're the, if you have four of a kind, if you have four scorpions or four rats in front of you, or if you run out of cards in your hand, you lose. And that is all of the rules to Cockroach Poker. But what it is, and what it kind of translates into, is... You bluff to the person to your left, and you try to call people's bluff to the person to your right as it comes around to you. And you choose whether to try to call the person who passed it to you, or to try to use their bluff on the person next to you. And that's kind of it. It's a very simple and kind of silly game about bluffing and just trying to be a convincing liar or see through people's lies. And it's very simple and remarkably has a very, very quick, I'd say one of the fastest ramp-up times, in that going from the rules explanation to playing to having a great time playing is very short. I'd say 
10, 15 minutes, maybe less if they pick it up quickly and you can give a great explanation. And it boils down to just a silly game of trying to bluff to your neighbor and trying to be just not be the person who's the worst at bluff. And great practice. I'd recommend it with younger audiences or with families. I've played it at a few family dinners and it's been great for that. Getting your, I don't know, your little sister to try to lie to your dad or to their mom and try to, you know, give that bluff and having the parent call it every time or not or just seeing who can read who else and who can lie to who else is very fun and just kind of a silly game heightened by the fact that you're passing around rats and bats and scorpions. And from my play experience, I it is a uh, two to six play game, but I have played it with seven and it works fine with that. And to be honest, it's kind of edging out Skull for me in a very simple bluffing game. I'd say the main difference between the two, because both are bluffing, but with Cockroach Poker, it's very one-on-one. With Skull, you can make a bluff and then anyone in the group can call it. Versus Cockroach Poker is directly the people to your left and right are who you're going to be interacting with for the large majority of the game. So it becomes a very more one-on-one type bluffing thing, and that kind of leads to a nice tension to it, I think. As well as a lot of giggles when people try and fail to hold a poker face or deliver a convincing lie, and their voice just lilts just a little bit, but you're not sure if that's intentional or not. It's very quick, it's very fun, I'd recommend it. It's a cheap game, great for parties, it's a good time. So that is Cockroach Poker. And now, on to today's topic, which in and of itself is a huge gargantuan topic that could be many podcasts, but I'm going to try to cover it all today, and that is painting miniatures, or minis. So painting minis is in itself a separate hobby from board games, and It's one that I partake in and I very much love. I play a few tabletop games, so I have lots of minis to paint. And with board games, especially dungeon crawling board games, there's usually a lot of miniatures in it, and those are great for painting as well. Painting miniatures in itself as a hobby is, I find, deeply relaxing. I guess because I think people, when they talk about painting miniatures as a hobby, definitely discount that it's just painting. Honestly, I don't think it's that. It's probably very close as a hobby to just oil painting or painting with, you know, any other medium. It's a very, very relaxing and slow hobby. So first I'm going to cover a bit about painting miniatures as a hobby in and of itself, and then I'm going to talk about it in relation specifically to board games. So painting minis is a great hobby. I said it's very relaxing. It's very, very enjoyable. There's a because it's so personal, but it's also something that is, it's not that hard to get good at. I'd say if you're, even if you're like drawing or sketching, it takes years of practice to really get to where you like your own results. Because people develop taste in art much faster than they develop skill in art. Most people drop drawing or art, you know, by the time they're like 13 and they can appreciate great art, but they still can't produce it themselves versus painting minis because a lot of the heavy lifting, and of course this depends on what mini miniatures you're painting, and of course I just call miniatures minis, most people do, a lot of the heavy lifting of the actual results is done by the model itself. So if you have a great model, you can do an alright paint job on it, and the result turns out great. 
So I find painting minis is a great hobby for getting results more quickly than a lot of hobbies. At least for me, I have been painting minis for about two years, I'd say, maybe a little longer. And I think I'm good. <laughs> I'm certainly not great. I'm not able to do the advanced techniques that I'm sure you've seen on whatever Kickstarter or Instagram or any source of painted miniatures. And if you haven't seen those, absolutely check them out because people do some awesome, incredible work with painting miniatures. It's honestly, it is its own art form and there are people who are great at it. But um, I would say I'm good at it or at least good enough for my own tastes. The miniatures that I create look good to me, and that is ultimately what it's about. And that brings up a huge topic, or something to remember, in that if you are getting into painting miniatures, or you have decided to start, don't get discouraged. And it's super possible, because you can, anywhere you look for painting minis, you'll see people who do incredible art, and their miniatures just look perfect, like how you don't even know how to actually get those results. And that can be quite discouraging. So I advise, at least with painting minis, that it's entirely a hobby or project for yourself. As long as you can create a, you know, an outcome that you are satisfied with, you win. You've done. Like, congrats. That's it. You're doing great. You don't have to compare yourself to anybody else. And, I mean, that could be said for art as a hobby or practice in general, but yeah, with miniatures you need to try not to get discouraged that you're not producing professional results, because of course you're probably not going to be professional very quickly. You can get competent at painting minis very quickly, but mastering it still takes the regular amount of time that any other hobby would take. And I'm certainly still learning. I'm definitely not perfect. Which brings me to another great thing, and I guess advice if you are picking up painting miniatures, is that don't sweat it. The amount of times I've been painting, like, the final touches on a model, and I just move my brush the wrong way, and it, like, globs paint onto the wrong part, and, you know, just absolutely smudges over something that I've been doing, that is just going to happen. That happens all the time, but the great thing is that you can just paint over it. It just takes a little bit more time, and that's fine. And it's definitely a hobby that builds patience. Because painting minis takes a long time. Even painting a single miniature up to a, you know, quality results probably will take an hour at least just for that mini. And that's something definitely to consider if you're thinking about this hobby. It's certainly, it's great. It's rewarding. I'd really recommend it. It's a great relaxation tool. Something that you can do inside in this year of 2020 that can help you relax from the very stressful world that's happening right now but it's not going to be a quick thing. You can get good at it fairly quickly, but you're not going to produce results very quickly. I mean, of course, and there's always speed painting techniques and ways that you can speed it up so that you can just do batches of whatever minis that you're painting, or even depending on how far you want to go, you don't have to do details on each one. You Even if you just want, if you get a board game and you just want to color code the things, you can just paint them all on color. And that's fine. So there are ways to do it faster, but it certainly is a thing that just takes a fair bit of time, and knowing that before you go in is important. A few more things while I'm on the topic of just painting minis is that, first off, if you're just starting out and maybe you have like a project, maybe you've bought a board game like I did, 
and you're excited to paint those miniatures and can't wait to do that, I would say, yeah, uh, hold up a minute. If you're just, you've just got all the kit, you've just got maybe a good headlamp, you've got a, you know, a few paints and brushes for painting miniatures, which are very much their own thing, and I would recommend, you know, doing a little research and finding out specifically kind of what you need. Yes, you can absolutely buy the cheaper options, but you definitely need to buy paints and brushes that are specifically for miniatures. But as a first step before you dive into that project and start on the board game that you really care about and want to paint up those miniatures, I would say wherever you are buying these paints or uh, brushes, they definitely sell cheap minis. Usually D&D minis are like three for five bucks or something like that. I would absolutely re recommend picking up some of those because you want to have a few practice models. Yeah, you can learn this hobby quickly, but they're still learning, and the first few you do are not going to be pretty, and that's fine. Uh, the first ones I did, I did the practice thing. I bought some Dragonborn minis. They're pretty hideous, to be honest, but I'm glad I started with that, and instead of starting on board game miniatures that I really like, wanted to look great and would see all the time, versus the just kind of throwaway practice minis that don't look great and are in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> so I'd absolutely recommend getting some practice miniatures and get, you know, get big, get small. If you're painting big miniatures, get big miniatures. If you're painting small, get small ones. And that'll definitely help. And yeah, once again, just don't get discouraged. Your first ones are not going to be great. And that's fine. That's with every hobby. You have to, what is it? The quote from Adventure Time is, sucking at something is the first steps to being good at something. So your first bit, you're not going to be very good at it. And that's fine. That's great. Just kind of got to press through that step. And for me, for my process for this, I know there's a huge amount of resources online. Duncan Rhodes is the, used to be the paid Games Workshop miniature painter. Um, and now he's kind of done his own thing, and I'd highly recommend checking him out. Uh, Sarastro's Minis on YouTube is another great resource if you want to learn how to paint miniatures or specific ones from games. I'd recommend both those guys. They're kind of people that I learned from, and there's a huge community that will teach you better than I can about this. Alas, it's kind of a thing that works better in a visual medium as opposed to this audio one, but for me to get good results, I will do a base coat, just an undercoat, um, just to help the paint actually stick on there. It's a bummer when you paint up a miniature and then you drop it and like a huge chunk of the nice paint job that you spent effort doing just chunks off. Put the base colors on, you know, skin color for skin color, red whatever, blue whatever, just block it all out. And for this I'd say do the larger areas first and then do the smaller ones on top, just because if you do the smaller first and then do the larger, sometimes you'll paint over, which of course happens, and you can just paint over it again. But yeah, just block in your colors, and then you can use the mini painting magic that honestly turns like decent painted miniatures into good-looking ones with very, very little effort, and that's uh, those are called washes or inks, depending, and honestly, they're kind of the secret sauce that, especially when you're beginning, it's just going to turn your miniatures from like, oh, that's not great, to like, oh, hey, that looks pretty good once you do that step, and how those work, they're just kind of their own product. It's a water-like substance mixed with ink or pigmentation that you just brush over the miniature, and as it dries, it darkens the recesses of the miniature. And honestly, it makes a... Even if you don't want to do like a huge fancy paint job, I would still say 
even if you're just going to paint like all the miniatures in your board game one color, like this team's red and this team's blue, I would still say maybe throw a wash on that because it just really highlights the model itself. It's and from a 3D artist background, it's like an ambient occlusion pass, which just brings out the it shades the recesses of whatever model you're looking at. And yeah, by washing, you'll definitely get a way, way better product with very, very little effort. Honestly, you just can slap it all over the miniature and you'll still get a decent result. So yeah, look up washes. If you're just starting out, they will definitely elevate your minis to something way better very easily. And then I'd say the last thing that you have to do, like learning and starting out, I'd say learn how to dry brush, which is a technique where you use a dry brush with a bit of paint and try to wipe most of it off until there's very little paint left on the brush. And then you kind of gently brush that over your miniature. And that does the opposite of a wash, which darkens the recesses. A dry brush actually will highlight the raised points. So it's just more to bring out that contrast and really like show off the 3D-ness of your little 3D miniature. And those are like the basic steps that I would recommend everybody learns when they're starting painting. Of course, there's wet blending and a zillion other really high level techniques that you can learn. And there's a huge amount of skill that you can apply this. But if you nail those basics, you will get good miniatures and ones that look good to you and you enjoy playing with. And now that I've talked about painting miniatures as a hobby, given some advice that has worked for me, I want to talk about it in more relation to board games. So I think, of course, it's worth mentioning that if you are going to paint miniatures, even for a board game, even if it has like 10 miniatures, that could potentially be 10 or depending on what level you want them to, but it could be 10 hours of work. I think a huge thing to realize is that painting miniatures takes a lot of time. And if you don't have a lot of time or you want the game to be playable without miniatures half painted or anything like that, it's definitely something to consider. And another I guess, piece of advice is definitely don't try a or start a mini painting project if you have a hard deadline that is pretty tight. Everything takes, I think, especially painting miniatures, especially when you're learning, everything takes longer than you expect. So if you have a, you know, a meeting to play this game, or whatever, you have the big Gloomhaven night that's going to happen in two weeks and you want to paint all the starting miniatures by then, I mean, depending on time, of course, but I would, I would shy away from that. I definitely start painting miniatures, especially if you're beginning, I would do it when you have much, much more time than you think. If you're yeah, going to be tight on a deadline, it's definitely going to not let you learn well and not give you enough time to get to the results that you want. All right, and now some of the pros and cons to painting board game miniatures. The pros are that your board game will be unique to you. No one will be able to do the exact same paint job that you did so it definitely personalizes a game, and it's something I'd recommend for games that you really like. If you've just bought it and you haven't played it yet and you don't know if you like it, maybe don't paint and set out on this, you know, many-hour project to paint all of the miniatures for it. But an example for me, myself, I played Cairn um, recently, and I'm going to be talking about it more on the podcast in the future, but it's a very simple game. It's got 5v5 miniatures moving around a grid, and these little miniatures are blue and orange and I definitely want to paint them just to give like it's a game I like enough that I know I'm going to have for a long time and I'd like to personalize my set of it and that's a huge pro of painting your board game miniatures. 
Another thing that you can do is it definitely helps, especially in larger games. If you have player are playing like a dungeon crawler with you know 40 plus miniatures, if you paint them, it helps you helps with recognizability. If you've got you know everything's gray plastic when you get it, and then you paint the fire giants red, you will immediately be able to pick them out faster. So it definitely helps with organization, and if you just want to like grab certain guys, it helps you pick them out of the jumble of gray plastic that you might be storing them in. So you can absolutely use paint as a way to augment the presentation of a board game. And yeah, for example, for my Cairn example, the one thing that bothers me about the presentation of that game, it's great, materials are great, I think the box is a little bigger than it needs to be, but I do like that the custom insert helps you organize stuff, great without any extra work needed on your part, but the one thing that bothers me about that game is that it's two teams of druids, and one are the sea druids and one are the forest druids, and they went with the color scheme of blue and brown. What? They're druids! Why is it not green? Blows my mind. I understand that they're kind of an orangey-brown, so maybe they just wanted to contrast the, you know, sort of orange with the blue, because those are complementary colors and definitely pop, or maybe that they're both druids, or they're all druids, so maybe they'd all have a claim on green, but it blows my mind that they didn't create a green team and a blue team for the game that has sea druids and forest druids. So, yeah, that's part of why I'm going to be painting them, and part of it is, yeah, you can correct things that bother you, if you, there's minis that are just like slightly the wrong color, maybe they went with like a weird skin tone beige for the miniatures in your game, and you, and it like looks a bit gross to you, or you just want to change things. If you paint over it, then it's solved. Yeah, I'm sure I'll like my set of Cairn even more when it's a little more green after I paint them. And lastly, I guess, say for pros for painting board game miniatures, is that it, it can just make your board game look better. Having little minis that are actual the colors that they would be instead of one solid color generally makes things look better and helps people get into the game a lot more and you can definitely pretty up a game by doing so and now moving on to cons i'd say there's not a huge amount of course the biggest con i guess is that it just takes time and money paints do cost money they're not terribly expensive but it definitely takes a lot of time to do so so if Time is short for you, yeah, of course, this is not the project for you. But secondarily, I'd say the second biggest con for it is that they will have paint on them, which, of course, you're less likely to just throw all the minis back in the box if they are painted and you've spent so much time doing them, as well as sometimes if you do paint them and don't, like, seal them properly or do a final coat that keeps the paint together, they can have kind of a tacky texture to them, or a little bit sticky, depending on the paint you use. But both of these problems are easily solvable with varnishes. And you can just get a spray can, much like a spray paint can, and this is just a sealant. If you varnish minis correctly, A, they won't be sticky because it won't be the actual paint, it'll be varnish, and that just hardens dry, of course, depending on what kind of varnish. Generally, testers is a great one, but you can, of course, find that, and that's very much to taste, but mostly varnishes will just seal it all together, they'll make it not sticky, and also with the layer of sealing on it, it'll protect the paint job. I mean, of course, if you chuck around minis, they're gonna get, the paint jobs will get chipped, but I mean, they're plastic minis, you can't be throwing them that hard without expecting them to break. 
or something to go wrong. So yeah, generally you'll be fine as long as you kind of do that, and that eliminates that con entirely, depending if you can varnish them right and seal them up at the end, that final coat. Um, it kind of stops both those problems. And I think the last thing to talk about painting minis in regard to board game miniatures is the hardest thing is knowing when it's worth it to do it or when to do it. In my example, Cairn, um, it's a game that I really like. I want to play more. I played it with a friend who really likes it and can't wait for the rematch. So I'm looking forward to that. And it's definitely one that I want to have in my collection for a long time. As well as the amount of miniatures in Cairn is 10, which is not a whole lot. Like It's definitely a very doable project. So that one is absolutely worth it for me. But knowing when it's worth it is a huge part of it. If you just got a dungeon crawler maybe one of these huge Kickstarters where you get maybe 100 plus minis or something. If you haven't played the game yet, I'd say don't paint the minis first. I mean, of course, if you just like painting minis like I do, that can just be a reward in and of itself. And even if the game's not great, you'll still have enjoyed painting those miniatures. And it can affect the resale quality. If you're really great at painting, you can sell it for more occasionally. But often, if you're just good at painting, it doesn't really affect the price point of selling something. But yeah, knowing when to do it is a huge thing. If it's a, if you know you love it, if you've played the board game a lot and know that it's going to be in your collection for a long time, then yeah, put the time in and paint it up and it'll look great and it'll be your copy. But it definitely cannot be worth it. One example for me is I got the, the Dark Souls board game and I was very excited to paint those miniatures. They're great miniatures. I love Dark Souls as the property. I've played all the games in the series. And I was quite excited to paint them and almost started, but I just held off because I wanted to know if I liked the game itself. And unfortunately, after a few tentative plays, it doesn't really seem what I'm interested in. The best parts about Dark Souls translate really well for me to a video game and not necessarily to a board game. So in this case, that would have been many, many hours of sp uh, I spent painting all these minis that I avoided just by checking out to see if I liked the game first. And I'm glad I did so, because if I had done beautiful paint jobs on all these, I would feel pretty bad about not really wanting to play the Dark Souls board game. So that's the last kind of thing, is just knowing when you want to do it. And I'd recommend it highly for ones that you know you really like, and to maybe hold off on ones that you don't know if you do. And that is all I can tell you for now about painting minis. I can go into more depth on how to do certain things, or what I do for things, and if this is a topic that people are really interested in, of course I can cover it more. It's a whole subject to itself, so reach out on Twitter or email me at meepleinagamestack at gmail. If you want to know more, let me know, and I will absolutely cover painting minis more. But with that, let's move on to the feature game, which is a very appropriate one to be featuring today, because this game is one that I knew I wanted to paint the minis for, even when I first got it. And it is actually the one that um, I spurred me into mini, mini painting in the first place. I didn't play any tabletop games, but when I originally got this game, I got into mini painting for it. And I mean, I'm glad I had those practice models first because it would have been some, some bad first models coming out. And this is Star Wars Imperial Assault. And it's now getting a bit older, but it's from Fantasy Flight Games, who originally or did the Descent series. It kind of was the successor, but with the Star Wars brand. 
and it is a dungeon-crawling miniatures board game. How it works generally in the base game like recommended mode is there will be one Imperial player who plays the Imperial Empire of Star Wars. You command all the stormtroopers and a, and a whole bunch of minis versus the team of four rebels who each have their one hero mini and their one character to move around the board. Of course, the heroes are much more powerful and capable than the, uh, you know, the goofy stormtroopers who run into stuff and can't hit anything with shots. And you square off, and it's actually a competitive game between the two teams. And it's tough to describe because, of course, every mission, which is basically every game of it, has different goals. And sometimes it's just get your miniatures, get your heroes across the map without dying back to a certain point. Sometimes it's just take out a certain character. Um, they've done a great job of varying the missions a lot among them. And another thing is I say missions because the games of it are actually meant to be played in a campaign. The base box campaign is, depending of course on side missions and stuff, is 10 uh, missions long. And this tells a story across it, and it gives you the opportunity for your your heroes and the rebels to level up their characters, get better gear, get new skills, and new capabilities. And yeah, you play by moving your characters across a grid. You roll dice to determine damage and hits, whether you have enough range to do certain abilities. Everyone has a character card with health and stress on it. Health being uh, just hit points, and once you're... Um, and in a great design move, actually, once you're out of health, you actually move into a damage state where you have the same amount of health again. So you almost have to die twice to be out-out, because and which is great for the game in that you can't... I mean, if you just get sucker-punched early, you're not going to be totally out of the game and just have to sit there while your friends play for maybe an hour, which is a great design choice. But also, it does a great job because the bad guy, the Imperial player, also wants to just injure all these guys. You don't have to... It has the positive of the player gets to keep playing while the uh, bad guy does actually can still achieve their goals by knocking everybody into this wounded state. It's another way they can win, apart from just stopping whatever objective the rebels are doing. As well, the Imperial player has many units to choose from, and they, every turn they'll get threat points, which are used to buy new miniatures and deploy them out onto the field. So this is very much one of the games that I was describing earlier, where there's 40-plus miniatures. I think there's even more than that in the base box of Star Wars Imperial Assault. So you have a large selection of bad guys to throw at the good guys, which is great. And that is the general description of Star Wars Imperial Assault. I won't get too deep, because of course there's rules, technicalities, like line of sight, and threat, and there's different conditions, like stuns, etc., etc., that I won't get into, but that is the basis of what this game is. And first off, I guess as a disclaimer before I get more into this, I should let you all know I love Star Wars. I'm a great big Star Wars fan. Of course, seen all the movies, seen the animated shows, even yeah. I mean, I I'm not quite the collecting the action figures level, but I'm not too far off of that. I do really enjoy Star Wars, and I love its world and the movies and reading and all that stuff. So of course, that colors my enjoyment for this game. If I understand, if you just don't care about Star Wars, yeah, this is not the game for you. It's a great game by itself, but definitely if you can't get immersed in the Star Wars universe, it's not going to be a great fit. And I would recommend the other Fantasy Flight one, Descent. 
is quite good. It's not, it's a little bit older and of course harder to find now, but hey, they just announced that there's a new version coming, so you could get into that when it comes out next April. But I would highly recommend that as a different dungeon crawler if you're looking for a similar thing, but don't quite like the Star Wars theme, which I understand. It's not for everybody. And some people think Jedis are dumb, and they're wrong. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so pick your poison on that. Another thing that's really interesting about this game is the asymmetricality. It's a one versus four game, and that hugely colors the experience, and as well as a lot of, like, for example, like Gloomhaven, all the enemies are determined by cards, which is great. And in Gloomhaven, they've done an excellent job of, you know, characterizing them based off what the different monsters and enemies based off of what their cards can do, but it's still automated, and it's still you playing against an AI. Uh, I mean, this AI is driven by cards, but it's still not as good as an opponent is. Having a human being running the bad guys in Star Wars Imperial Assault makes them actually dangerous and able to stop you. If you think of a clever plan and go to enact it, the player actually reacts to that, as opposed to an AI which probably wouldn't, and leads it so that AI can be exploited, but a player can't really. I mean, of course there's always going to be scenarios where the rules kind of lead to certain stronger paths to victory, but... Having this one versus four nature is really interesting and really fun. And of course, it's one thing I like about it is that uh, coming from a Dungeons and Dragons background and being the dungeon master most of the time, I'm definitely auto want to be the Imperial player. I like having the army of minis to throw out the good guys and being the bad guy. And with my dungeon mastering experience, I definitely know to which I can see the competitive nature of this souring some people. You could have a bad experience if the bad guy is absolutely trying to just be a dick about everything. And yeah, it could absolutely lead the experience back. But yeah, as with Dungeons and Dragons, it's definitely like, you know, something you have to gauge. If you're just stomping them as the Imperials, maybe throw some stormtroopers to go die to kind of pick up morale a bit and make it so that it's still fun, so that they still play with you. If you just win really hard, they're not going to come back all the time. So, of course, that's a balanced thing to this game. But the asymmetricality is really well balanced and really interesting and gives this dungeon crawler a very unique flavor. Another really interesting thing about this game, and one that I really like and is really great, is that there are four different ways to play it. I've described the base game, which is the one versus four game. Um, and that's kind of the intended experience, but they have added on a couple more ways to play it, which is great. Hey, you get one board game and get two board games out of it. So the other one included in the base box is just a skirmish mode, and this kind of turns it into a small tabletop miniatures game. And you can play teams. You can be, I believe it's Rebels, Scum, and Empire. And Scum is just kind of like bounty hunters and other near-duels of the Star Wars universe. But you can then play head-to-head -head where the two players control multiple miniatures and you compete for objectives or just death matches. I have not played this one as much, and um, but I just really like that they've included another way to use all these wonderful miniatures and these resources in the game and just give you more bang for your buck on that. And yeah, of course, as someone who loves tabletop miniatures games, it's really interesting to see this board game tabletop like miniatures game hybrid. 
The other fantastic thing that they've done is there's now a free app for Star Wars Imperial Assault. So maybe you can't get the intended five players um, and uh, for the one versus four kind of main game. You can, of course, play one versus three or one versus two, but generally those aren't as good. But they've actually released a companion app that's free and lets you play cooperatively. So the four of you will go against uh, the AI-determined bad guys and try to achieve your goals. And there's actually even campaigns, and and you can even play that way and have, yeah, con- computer-controlled. So if you well, maybe your friend group is uncomfortable with someone being the bad guy, I mean... It's not for everybody. You can definitely just use this app. And it's actually really well produced. It's like well made. And the AI is a little tricky to learn. But once you've got it, it kind of makes sense. And yeah, that's just another way to play and get the most out of this box. And another feature of that app is that you can enter in what expansions that you have for the game. And it actually customizes your experience. There's even separate campaigns for some of the larger box expansions. What brings me to the next topic about this game is, in Fantasy Flight fashion, they have made it endlessly expandable. There are, I think, I think there's six major expansions, which are their own box and have, you know, multiple miniatures and their own smaller campaigns. Maybe you've done the 10 mission campaign from the core box, while these other ones have I mean, variable length. Some are only four, and some are up to, I think, that ten or eight. And yeah, if you just want to keep playing with your friends and get different stories and different campaigns out of it, there's those. As well as there the almost like booster pack cards. There's individual ministers that you can buy and add as heroes or villains. You can get Han Solo and Chewbacca. You can get Leia and Orlando or C-3PO. Or you can get more stormtroopers you can get all sorts of bad guys and stuff to just kind of juice this game so if you like the base game and i would recommend that is all you actually need to play the game is you just need the base box i think it's still kind of around a hundred dollars depending on canadian us or wherever part of the world and what currency you use um so it's a bit more expensive but that's all you need to play the game you can just get the base box and have a great time with this game you don't need to get expansions necessarily but if you want to and you want to invest in this game you can get as much as you can this could be the only board game you play for years and that's not a bad thing you'll still have a lot there's definitely a huge amount to get out of this game the one asterisk i should throw on that is that it is actually getting a bit older. At the time of this podcast, it's, I think, close to five years, maybe six years old, and a lot of these expansions are getting harder to find. The base game still seems to be in stock pretty often and easily gettable, but um, this expanded content is getting harder and harder to find. And yeah, here's hoping maybe they'll do like another reprint of that kind of stuff, but I don't think that's super likely. And yeah, that's Star Wars Imperial Assault. I, for myself, I really enjoy it. I love the Star Wars theme. I like the clever mechanics. I like the dungeon crawling and the various miniatures that I have now all painted. I've completed my base set and the, oh god, however many miniatures that are in that. I really like this game. And I think it's really a good one for, I mean, the big, the big but there is, of course, if you're into 
dungeon crawler games or miniatures heavy games. As just a board game, I can understand why people might not like it. It's very expensive for a board game. It's definitely its own experience. It's fast and dice rolly, which not everyone appreciates in board games. But for me, it's something that I really like. And it's one of my favorites. And I would really recommend this game. I think it's a great one. And that is Star Wars Imperial Assault. Maybe as a final thing, if you find, maybe you've played this or you tried it with a friend and you really like it, but it's, um, if you want to go a little further and a little more creative, I'd say for dungeon crawling games are pretty close to role-playing games. I mean, depending on the role-playing game, of course, but the big one, Dungeons and Dragons, the combats in Dungeons and Dragons are pretty similar to this game. Um, if you can play this game, you can play the combat in D&D just fine, but then with D&D, you actually get a lot more creativity and certainly a very, very different experience than this. So just this is a sidebar. I still think it's a great game and you should get it. But um, if you find that you really like this experience and want to get more into your character or more into just improv and silly situations or real life scenarios, I would say try out Dungeons and Dragons. But that is going to do it for our podcast today. As always, big thanks to the artist Grumpy Snorlax for the use of his song Cerulean as our intro and outro music. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you've had a good time listening to it, please rate it five stars or whatever you think it's worth on whatever platform you're on. And if you want to support the show, share it with a friend. Tell your board gaming group. Maybe you've got a friend who really likes Star Wars or a friend who's thinking of getting into mini painting and this would be an interesting episode for them. Please just let somebody know. It is great for the podcast, and I want to grow the community around this podcast. So thanks so much. And speaking of community, in the future, I'm looking on ways to implement that a bit more so that it's a little more interactive. And it's, yeah, I'm just looking for ways to implement that a bit more. So a bit of a teaser for future attractions. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.